This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello? Dr. Calhoun, this is Jonathan Master calling. Oh yes, Jonathan. Good to hear from you. Yes, good to hear from you. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. It is a real honor for me to welcome our guest today. He is Professor Emeritus of Church History at Covenant Seminary. He is an author and a teacher. Today we're discussing Old Princeton Seminary, and he's written a two-volume history of the seminary, published by Banner of Truth. And on a personal note, I should say that I reread those volumes every two years or so, and I'm in the process of rereading volume one just now. So for me especially, I am delighted and privileged to welcome David Calhoun to speak about Princeton Seminary. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Calhoun. Thank you, Jonathan. Let's begin by talking about Old Princeton Seminary. Why does that seminary matter for confessional evangelicals today? In other words, why should we care? Good question, and I can give a, a long answer, and I can give a short answer, so I'll give the short answer. The long answer is found in the two volumes. All right, very good. Very good. I would commend I, those volumes to people. I, thank you. I I had a friend, a friend that uh, wrote me some time ago and said that he had read volume two three times, hoping the story would turn out differently. <laughs> but volume two ends in 1929 when the denomination, the Presbyterian Church in the USA, reorganized uh, the seminary. Not every good thing left in 1929, but that was the turning point, and after 1929, it really isn't possible to speak of old Princeton anymore. That um, seminary had existed for over 100 years, 117 years, from 1812 when it was founded to 1929 when it was reorganized. And I think uh, during that 100 years, that was a significant time in American history, significant period in Presbyterian history, significant period in American Christianity, and um, for that century, Old Princeton was the leading voice in American Christianity, respected by people from many different denominations and backgrounds, a leading voice in saying, uh, these things we need to hold to, these things are not negotiable. These doctrines are doctrines found in the Bible. And uh, at the same time, Princeton was not the kind of place that refused to think about anything different or new. So there was a good combination there of faith and learning, which is the subtitle of my first volume. The Christian faith is set forth in the scripture and summarized in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, learning as much as we can about the Bible and about everything else, because everything really matters. So 
I would say Princeton was the respected voice of American Christianity for that century. Now, you you mentioned in that answer certain non-negotiable doctrines, certain doctrines that they considered really at the core of the Christian faith. What what were those non-negotiable doctrines in early Princeton? I think um, number one is the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. But Princeton did not invent that uh, doctrine, as it sometimes claimed, but inherited it from... The Protestant scholastics like Turretin, from Calvin, from Augustine, and the Princetonians would claim, and I think they're right, from the Scripture itself. So, Princeton's view on the Scripture is not a narrow, mechanical doctrine of inspiration without taking into consideration the many different genres and different approaches to truth and to writing truth as found in the Bible, but um, with that um, understanding that the Bible is both the Word of God and was written by human instruments that God used, uh, Princeton uh, held true to the doctrine of the Scripture, and uh, that certainly is important today with a lot of different uh, ideas being uh, Approached about exactly what the Bible is and how much we can trust it and how much we can believe it. A- absolutely. Would, absolutely. I'm oh, sorry. go on. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, along with that, I think uh, Princeton makes clear that a non negotiable doctrine is the doctrine of justification by faith alone which um, was a Reformation heritage, but um, goes back to St. Augustine and once again uh, back to the Scripture. And again, at a time when we find a lot of discussion about exactly what that means and how much we can uh, hold to the teaching of uh, the Westminster Confession, for instance, on this doctrine, uh, Princeton was clear that this is something that we can talk about and we can illustrate and we can preach about and we can go as far as we can in trying to understand it, but it's not something that we would change or that um, is something that can be altered in, in the Christian faith. I think Warfield makes the point someplace that the the one place he felt that doctrine still had room for rather extensive development was in eschatology. But given the scripture and given the confessional creeds and given the history of the Reformation, Warfield felt that those basic doctrines of scripture had been sifted, thought through, uh, champion preach, people died for their faith in them, and that these were things that um, were non-negotiable, as we have said. But eschatology not yet uh, was clearly and fully worked out, and uh, perhaps hasn't uh, hasn't been so even down to the present. 
That's that's uh those are helpful guidelines just to see what what hadn't been pinned down and but what they, where they absolutely knew they needed to draw a line in the sand. Now going back to the history of the seminary itself, why was it started? How did how did Princeton Seminary begin? You've mentioned some of the glue that held it together doctrinally, but why was it started? It was started uh, by uh, Presbyterians. Uh, to have a seminary like the Congregationalists in uh, New England already had. So Andover Seminary had started a few years earlier that uh, gave the example of what uh, a theological seminary could look like. Uh, before that, uh, ministers were trained largely by becoming um, interns with pastors and working with pastors and reading and studying on their own with a single pastor, but uh, there seemed to be something uh, good about uh, the concept of a community with more than one professor and a number of seminaries uh, studying together. And so about uh, five or six years after Andover started, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church decided to begin its own seminary, which um, had the opening uh, service and inauguration of the first uh, professor, Archibald Alexander, in uh, 1812. I always, uh, when I think about that, I it always uh, I'm impressed with uh, something that happened at that service, Dr. Alexander was being uh, inaugurated as professor of the seminary, just one professor, and there were three students to join him the first year of the seminary. Dr. Alexander and these students were sitting in the Presbyterian Church in Princeton for the service, and a lot of other people were there, of course, too. But uh, giving the opening address or sermon uh, was Samuel Miller, who just a year or so later became the second professor of the seminary. But uh, Samuel Miller, in um, in a, addressing that congregation, uh, said something that um, is rather overwhelming. Uh, He said that um, we have reason uh, here today to um, thank God and be delighted with the prospects that here we have the beginning of an extensive and permanent system from which blessings may flow to millions while we're sleeping the dust. Hmm. So from the very beginning, there was was, uh, the... The hope that uh, Princeton would uh, become more than just a school, or even more than just a theological seminary, but a source of blessing to millions. And I think to the history of the old Princeton, that hundred years, and certainly through the many writings of the professors at that time, like uh, Charles Hodge and Archibald Alexander, and then Alan into the 
20th century with uh, Warfield and Machen. Uh, blessings have indeed come to many, maybe to millions, through the founding of that seminary. Hmm. That's really sort of staggering to think about, but um, an answer to Samuel Miller's prayers. Uh, if I were to, you've mentioned a few key figures: Archibald Alexander, Samuel Miller, B.B. Uh, Warfield, and then just there at the end, you mentioned Machen and some others. Right. Who are some of the other key figures who are worth reading today, worth looking into and studying today from this period of time in in the history of Princeton Seminary? I think uh, to Alexander Miller, Charles Hodge, of course, is a key figure after the period of Alexander. He was the the most noted uh, theologian at the seminary and did a great deal to shape it and to keep it um, moving as it should along the lines that the founders had determined. Uh, there were others, too. It's worth reading J.W. Alexander, one of Archibald Alexander's sons, his sermons and his writing on preaching. Uh, these books are in print, and I'm sure has published a number of them. Also, his brother, J.A. Alexander, who was maybe the most uh, brilliant of all the Princeton uh, professors, a little bit of an eccentric in some ways, but um, a man who was a careful exegete of Scripture, and his uh, writings on a number of the books of the Bible are still uh, very, very valuable uh, today. Let me tell you about one other that I have just... Learn more about um, Samuel Clement Moffat became professor of uh, church history in 1861. Until Dr. Moffat's uh, time, church history had been taught at the seminary by the other professors. And so it was a kind of um, topic, uh, course that uh, did not seem to have the importance and a more permanent place in the curriculum of the seminary. Dr. Samuel Miller taught it for a while, and some others taught it too. Uh, They were pastors. These men were pastors who had an interest in church history. They were not uh, trained in church history as uh, professors of church history in later days are, but um, they taught church history, they did it well, and yet uh, it wasn't until the time of Dr. Moffat that there was a man at Princeton who was there mainly because of uh, church history. And uh, Moffat uh, is an interesting uh, character in his own right. He was born in Scotland, uh, grew up in uh, Galloway in southwestern Scotland, um, was a shepherd, a shepherd boy, and had almost no schooling whatsoever in schools, but his 
time out on the hills than the moors of uh, Scotland or the sheep, uh, he used to become an expert in Greek and Hebrew and Latin and a number of modern languages and read his way into an understanding of church history. He becomes a professor in 1861, and he taught for over 20 years. So here's a, one of the Princeton professors who's very little known, mm-hmm. and yet uh, is a man of real importance, I think. Well, that's interesting, a lesser-known a lesser known figure, and certainly some of those ones that are better known are are still worth reading today. And I would also, again, commend to our listeners your volumes on Princeton Seminary, very accessible, very readable, and I, I, I just derive great benefit from them personally every time I read through them. So, Dr. Calhoun, I wish we had more time, but I thank you for the time that you have graciously given to us today. And I would invite all our listeners to investigate Old Princeton and particularly the doctrines that, as Dr. Calhoun has said, held them together and and, and the ones that they considered non-negotiable. So thank you, Dr. Calhoun, for your time today. Thank you, Jonathan. I enjoyed talking with you. Well, I enjoyed it very much as well. We appreciate it. You've been listening to Theology on the Go a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.